I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Welcome to this podcast of The People's Pharmacy. You can find previous podcasts and more information on a range of health topics at peoplespharmacy.com. Are you taking good care of your digestive tract? In addition to eating right, what screening do you need? This is The People's Pharmacy with Terry and Joe Graydon. A lot of people dread preparing for a colonoscopy. Drinking all that yucky-tasting stuff can be challenging. Running to the bathroom every few minutes is also unpleasant. Are there new approaches to the prep that are more tolerable? Are there other ways to detect and prevent cancer? The upper end of the digestive tract is also vulnerable. Chronic heartburn may lead to Barrett's esophagus. How can people protect themselves from esophageal cancer? Coming up on The People's Pharmacy, Dr. Nicholas Shaheen answers your questions about protecting your digestive tract. In The People's Pharmacy Health Headlines, a lot of people believe the COVID-19 pandemic is over, but for millions of people, the impact of this virus lingers. A study published as a preprint in MedArchive found that 21.5% of adults who were infected with the Omicron BA5 variant this past summer are now suffering with long COVID. More than four weeks after their infection, they reported unusual fatigue, shortness of breath, or trouble concentrating. Young adults and Hispanics were especially likely to be infected. Unemployed people and those with pre-existing conditions were most likely to suffer the lasting symptoms of long COVID. The lead author notes that healthcare authorities should start focusing more on long COVID as well as hospitalizations and deaths. A study published in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease establishes a link between COVID-19 infection and Alzheimer's disease. The researchers analyzed data from more than 6 million older adults across the U.S., These senior citizens, with no prior diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease, had medical encounters between February 2020 and May 2021. Roughly half a million contracted COVID during that time, compared to more than 5 million without evidence of a COVID-19 infection. The scientists analyzed the likelihood of a new Alzheimer's disease diagnosis among both groups. Those who contracted COVID were at substantially higher risk of being diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease within a year of catching the virus. Older women appeared especially vulnerable. The investigators do not know whether the coronavirus causes neurodegeneration or accelerates a process that is already underway. If the association between long COVID and Alzheimer's disease is confirmed, the long-lasting impact of the coronavirus could be felt for many years to come. A nationwide study of health records in Sweden suggests a connection between infection and early diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. The scientists were not looking at COVID-19 infections. The investigators reviewed records of more than 12 million Swedish adults between 1970 and 2016. Those with a history of hospitalization for infections in early and midlife were 16% more likely to earn a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease before age 60. Infections were also linked to a very modest increase in the risk of Parkinson's disease by about 4%. 
Somewhat surprisingly, both bacterial and viral infections showed an association with these two neurodegenerative diseases. Several different sites of infection, including the urinary and digestive tracts, were implicated. As investigators point out, this type of observational study can't establish a cause-and-effect relationship, but it does suggest there could be a connection between infections and neurodegenerative disorders. A new study offers more evidence that the beta-amyloid theory of Alzheimer's disease is losing steam. For decades, neuroscientists believed that reducing the amount of plaques and tangles visible in the brain could improve the course of Alzheimer's disease. A new drug, cronezumab, reduces beta-amyloid accumulation in the brain but has failed an important phase 3 clinical trial. The drug did not slow cognitive decline. Perhaps it's time to reconsider the beta-amyloid theory of Alzheimer's disease. Over the last couple of decades, depression has been increasing. The pandemic appears to have made this trend worse. A national survey carried out in 2020 finds that nearly one in 10 adults and almost one in five adolescents and young adults report experiencing major depression. Most of these young people went untreated, either with therapy or medications. Another report titled, The Kids Are Not All Right, also found a high rate of mental health problems among adolescents. Inpatient admission for mental health problems in youngsters between 12 and 15 rose more than 80% in the five years from 2016 to 2021. Experts express concern that the need for mental health services is increasing far more rapidly than it can be met. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. I'm a medical anthropologist. And I'm Joe Graydon. I'm a pharmacologist. Today, we're talking about digestive health problems and how you can protect your esophagus, your stomach, your small intestines, and your colon. We're interested in your questions, so we invite you to call or email. Our lines are open at 888-472-3366. You can email us, radio at peoplespharmacy.com. And we are delighted to have here in our studio one of our favorite guests, Dr. Nicholas Shaheen. He is the Bozimski heiser Distinguished Professor of Medicine at the University of North Carolina School of Medicine and Chief of the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology at UNC. Dr. Shaheen is a recognized expert in esophageal diseases and endoscopy. Welcome back to the People's Pharmacy, Dr. Shaheen. What a pleasure it is to be here today with you guys. Thanks for having me. Well, you're one of our first in-studio guests since uh, COVID hit, and so we are thrilled to have you here. Uh, We do invite our listeners to call on their questions. We're going to start with heartburn because, let's face it, heartburn and reflux and Barrett's esophagus, that's the... That's the place you play. That's that's what you do uh, almost every day. And the questions are available to you right now. 888-472-3366 is the phone number. And you can email, email us radio at peoplespharmacy.com. 
Now, Dr. Shaheen, in 2015, a group of scientists conducted a survey online, um, and they published it in 2020. They had 71, more than 71,000 participants, and the results kind of surprised us. 44% of these people reported that they had had symptoms of consistent with GERD at some point in the past. And what's more, 31% of them said they'd had symptoms within the past week. And then of those who had had symptoms, more than a third of them were taking medication. But here's what really got us. More than half of those who were taking medicines like PPIs, like omeprazole or esomeprazole, those people still had symptoms. Is that consistent with what your patients are telling you? Unfortunately, it absolutely is. So there's an epidemic of GERD in this country, and we don't talk about it. It shows up in our media. It's almost part of the American fabric. You know, I can't believe I ate the whole thing and all this stuff. But we don't talk about it to our docs unless they bring it up. You know, we GERD is so commonplace that when you go in for your 20-minute visit, you're not probably going to bring up your reflux symptoms unless the doc asks. And unfortunately, the doc doesn't ask very now, well. You, now, first of all, you're all talking about GERD. Yeah. What is it? So Gastroesophageal reflux disease. That's exactly right. And the basic idea here is this is stomach content, stuff that's supposed to be down in your stomach, which is kind of below your diaphragm on the bottom of your rib cage, is coming up instead into your chest. Now, understand that the acid that's in your stomach has a pH of one or two. Now, put that into context. It's remarkable. It's amazing that any biological system can tolerate this. It's if, incredibly acid. Incredibly acidic. I'm not talking a little, I'm like talking car battery acidic. If you put this acid in a cup and threw a penny in and came back three days later, the penny would be gone and the cup would be gone. There are very few things biologically that can tolerate the acidity of your stomach. Miraculously, your stomach is one of those things. Your stomach is so exquisitely engineered that it can tolerate this acid sitting it without, usually without burning a hole. That's what peptic ulcer disease is when the acid and the other digestive enzymes have burned a hole in the stomach. But that happens, obviously, relatively infrequently. On the other hand, when these contents, this really horribly acidic stuff, which is terrific for digesting food but lousy for your linings of your GI tract, gets where it's but not supposed to be, i.e. up in your chest, you don't have that exquisite protective mechanism. And your esophagus doesn't like it. And it becomes inflamed. That inflammation, the symptomatic correlate of that inflammation is heartburn. And before I leave that, let me describe to you what heartburn is because unfortunately, we use the term indiscriminately for any ache between your chin and your knees. So understand when you're talking to your doc what heartburn is and what heartburn isn't, okay? Classic heartburn is a warmth or discomfort that rises from the bottom tip of your breastbone. So if you kind of put your hand just at the bottom of your rib cage in the center of your chest and rises up toward your chin, oftentimes after eating, oftentimes when laying down, oftentimes when eating to excess, oftentimes with more alcohol, pretty much if you're enjoying it, it's probably going to cause you heartburn. <laughs> that's um, a terrible Unfortunately, idea. yeah. So that's what heartburn is. Heartburn is not pain below your belly button. 
Heartburn is not pain that gets better with a bowel movement. Heartburn is not even pain in the pit of your stomach above your belly button but below your breastbone. That's called dyspepsia, and that's a different entity, and it's treated differently as well. So that should hopefully be helpful when you're talking to folks about getting help for this. You know, say, I've got heartburn when, you're, when you have that classic symptom. Well, have you ever experienced such symptoms? We'd love to hear from you. Our lines are open at 888-472-3366. Dr. Nicholas Shaheen is standing by to take your questions. And Dr. Shaheen, we have an email from Constance. She says, is the sensation of a lump in your throat, is that part of GERD? So the answer to that is possibly. Okay, the, the sensation of a lump in the throat is a different entity than heartburn. That's actually called globus, okay? Uh, the, the feeling of a lump or something in the back of your throat that you can't get rid of. A couple things to understand about that. First, when we investigate that, there's hardly ever anything physical in there, even though it feels like there's something like a ball of phlegm that's been described to me by my patients or, or something back there that they'd like me to get out for them. There isn't physically anything back there, okay? And you, and you are in a position to know because you actually go down and take a look using endoscopy. I've seen a lot of back there's, and all the back there's have nothing in them. I can tell you that. It's, it's extremely rare, and, that's, and if you do get a food impaction where you're eating and the food stops, that's a totally different beast from Globus, and that demands immediate investigation. Okay, say that again, because that's really important. So if you're eating and you have the sensation while you're eating of a chunk of food stopping, either in your chest or the back of your throat, that's a medical urgency. That's something that needs to be checked out. And that oftentimes indicates that there could be something bad going on. And by bad, I mean a couple things, either a growth of the esophagus or a narrowing of the esophagus, which is called a stricture, those things do need investigation. So that's different than the kind of constant sensation of a lump in the back of your throat that's not associated with you. That's and, called globus. Okay. And when you say urgency, you don't mean call the ambulance right now unless, of course, you can't breathe or, or something like that. But you do mean don't wait until next week or next month. That's correct. And, and, and if it doesn't pass expeditiously, and by expeditiously, I mean within a few minutes, that's kind of the, the thing that you want to probably be headed. Don't need to call 911. Don't need to call an ambulance. But probably do want to be headed into the ER for if, it, if it's not passing. Because what will happen, the, the reason we want folks to come in is that with time, secretions, your, essentially your spit, et cetera, will build up above that. Uh, that piece of food that you have lodged and can cause problems with your respirations, et cetera. So, so yes, it's something that, that uh, if you feel food sticking, it goes through. That's something you want to let your doc know about. You know, that's not an emergency or an urgency, but it's something that probably should be looked into in the next couple of weeks. And you should have endoscopy. In other words, if this is happening regularly, if you go, yeah, there's something getting stuck after – after supper, um, and I'm not – it's not passing easily, but it finally goes down. But it's happened over the last couple of months to the last year or two. That's when they need to see someone like you because you're going to go down and take a look and see if there's anything going on. All, that's correct, Joe. Almost always in that setting, we're going to recommend upper endoscopy. And and before you get freaked out, that sounds scary, upper endoscopy. It's got multiple syllables and it's an, obviously an intervention. Understand that this isn't such a bad thing. Um, it, what it is is you're going to come in. We're going to put an IV in your arm. 
you're essentially with the medications we have nowadays, you're going to have a nice snooze. In almost all cases, you're going to have no cognition that you're getting the test done. A tube the size of my pinky, and I, you can attest I don't have that big a pinky, um, with a light and a camera on the end of it is inserted in the back of your throat and down your esophagus by someone who's expert at this and has training. Someone like you. Someone like me. And they're going to look along your food tube, and what they're looking for is the point of obstruction and what's causing the obstruction. Mm -hmm. Now, the most common cause is this narrowing that I mentioned before, which is a stricture, okay? What causes it? The common causes of strictures, the most common cause traditionally would be acid from reflux, okay? Remember, I was telling you before this acid comes up, one of the sequelae or one of the things that that acid can cause with time and repeated exposure is a narrowing of the esophagus, and that's the stricture. Now, understand that if we find that, it's not we're not just tourists. We're not just observing. We can actually help. What we're going to do is we're going to put a balloon across that area or we're going to insert what's called a dilator and we're going to stretch that area and we're going to alleviate those symptoms. So in addition to being diagnostic, meaning we find out what's wrong, it's therapeutic, meaning that we're going to make it better. I have talked to people who have had this procedure done a couple of times because sometimes the stricture comes back. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly right because what what the while the stretch makes the stricture better, it doesn't necessarily address the underlying cause. And for instance, if the cause is reflux and the reflux continues, not surprisingly, the stricture recurs. You're listening to Dr. Nick Shaheen, Chief of the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology at the University of North Carolina School of Medicine. After the break, we're going to talk about colonoscopy and some innovations and preparations for the procedure. Has the prep ever seemed too daunting for you? Did it discourage you from getting a colonoscopy? We don't want that to happen. No. Our lines are open at 888-472-3366. If you can't get through, you can send us an email, radio at peoplespharmacy.com. Again, to talk to Dr. Nicholas Shaheen, give us a call, 888-472-3366. You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Gaia Herbs. For more than 30 years, Gaia Herbs has nurtured the connection between people and plants to deliver nature's vitality. Their full-spectrum formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial to get in the way. Learn more at GaiaHerbs.com. That's G-A-I-A Herbs. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia, maker of high-potency cocoflavanol supplements that support cognitive and cardiovascular health. More information at cocovia.com. And by Gaia Herbs providing transparency through its Meet Your Herbs platform, tracing the origin and DNA of each product. 
More information at Gaia Herbs, G-A-I-A Herbs.com. Today on The People's Pharmacy, we're talking with Dr. Nicholas Shaheen. He is the Bozimski Heiser Distinguished Professor of Medicine at the University of North Carolina School of Medicine and Chief of the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology at UNC. Dr. Shaheen is a recognized expert in esophageal diseases and endoscopy. Our lines are open for your questions about protecting your digestive tract at 888 472 3366. You can email us, radio at peoplespharmacy.com. That phone number again, 888-472-3366. And Dr. Shaheen, we have an email from Sylvia who says, about a month ago, I had my lap band removed. Uh, We'll get to the lap band later. But prior to the lap band removal, they did an endoscopy which showed evidence for developing Barrett's esophagus. Since the lap band was removed, I've had heartburn every day. I've taken Rolaids and a generic brand of Pepsid prescribed by my doctor. What can I do to prevent Barrett's esophagus and esophageal cancer? What can I take to safely stop the heartburn and prevent any future health problems? I am petrified of this turning into cancer since I'm a breast cancer survivor of 32 years? Terrific question, and one that we commonly face. And we do need to tell people, what is Barrett's esophagus, and why is Sylvia so worried about it? Absolutely. So this is what you need to know about Barrett's esophagus. So Barrett's esophagus is a change of the inner lining of the esophagus. The inner lining of your esophagus usually looks like the skin on the palms of your hands. It's what's called squamous epithelium, okay? Um, With repeated exposure to acid, the lining at the bottom of the esophagus switches its characteristic from this squamous epithelium to what's called columnar epithelium. And you say, well, this is a bunch of pointy-headed stuff. Why should I care about that? Well, you should care about it because that columnar epithelium has the propensity, a slight propensity, and we can talk about what that really means, to go on to cancer, to transform to cancer, okay? Uh, What is the risk of cancer if you've undergone this change? Well, in an average person with no precancerous changes who's just had the Barrett's esophagus occur, the odds are not high. We're talking about for every 1,000 people that have that in any given year, three will develop cancer, well less than 1%. Mm -hmm. So the first message I would have for Sylvia is don't be petrified, Be appropriately concerned, okay? Don't go to bed thinking this is something that's going to happen to me tomorrow because if it's appropriately monitored, your doctors will know that you have a problem long before you have a serious problem. What does appropriately monitor mean? Well, appropriately monitor means that we're going to intermittently do upper endoscopy, that procedure I just described uh-huh. to you, on about an every three to five-year basis, depending on how much of, that, of the precancerous tissue you have, to monitor it. And during that time, we're going to take little samples called biopsies, not much bigger than the head of a pin, and we're going to look at them under the microscope. And they're going to tell us whether or not you're one of the small proportion of pers- people that are headed to cancer. If you are, the good news is in the old days, that meant that the esophagus had to come out. And that was a big procedure. It's called an esophagectomy and it's tough to get through. And it changes your life. Oh, it it does. It changes your life. Yeah. 
Nowadays, we can actually treat that precancerous tissue with tools that don't require the removal of your esophagus. And I'm going to hit the pause button here because you are being a bit modest. You have been revolutionizing the treatment of esophageal cancer and these abnormal cellular changes for many years. You you were sort of at the head of the line when it came to this. What did you discover? How good is it? And there's now a new procedure. Instead of heat, you're using cold. Great questions, Joe. And the first thing I tell you it's, is that this is a classic example of team science that I definitely was one of a group of folks that that 20, 25 years ago said, gosh, we're doing a lot of esophagectomy and it's causing a lot of problems and there must be a better way. And in conjunction with not just other investigators at universities, but little companies that became big companies, um, helped develop these tools that either burn or freeze or remove the precancerous tissue so healthy stuff can grow in. And what we found early, which facilitated all this, was if you kill the bad stuff and you give good acid suppression, and we can talk about what that means, what comes back is not the bad stuff again. It's the normal epithelium. And if you do that, you can decrease the chance that those people will ever get cancer by 95%. Wow. Without removing their esophagus, they still eat normally. They don't go through a big procedure, and we markedly diminish the chance that they'll ever get cancer. And these treatments, they're called ablative therapies or ablation because they ablate or get rid of the precancerous stuff, letting the healthy stuff grow in. Now, I remember, as Joe said, you've you've been working on this, doing some really important research for a long time, and quite a few years ago now, you you talked to us about radiofrequency ablation. What's that? Yeah, radiofrequency ablation is probably the first widespread tool that we use for this. And, and at, parenthetically, is still the one that we probably use most, although we have a lot more tools in our bag now. And it's essentially a heating type of ablation. And what it is, is we pass these uh, highly powerful waves through coils that we place next to the tissue. It heats the tissue and it destroys the superficial or innermost layer where the precancer cells are. It's it's much more logical than what we used to do. It, I, the analogy that, that a friend of mine came up with was, would you knock down a whole house just because you didn't like the wallpaper? And now we're removing the wallpaper. We're leaving the muscular part of the esophagus and everything else around it, just changing the inner wallpaper where the problem is. Now, you're also using, as you said, cold cryotherapy. And how well is that working compared to the radiofrequency? That's right. And and one thing we found early on was that a uh, not inconsequential group of somewhere between 10 and 20 percent of patients would not respond to these treatments or did not respond optimally to these treatments. So we said, could we develop something else? Maybe there's something interesting about those cells that they're more resistant to heat or what have you. Are there other ways of getting this accomplished? And the short answer is yes. Anything that kills those cells is going to allow the regeneration of healthy cells. So we started developing treatments with cold, like spraying liquid nitrogen. This sounds crazy. I mean, think about we can turn your esophagus literally as cold as an ice cube. And your body tolerates it. 
the innermost lining dies. That's astonishing. It's literally as hard as an, the first time I did this. I said, "My God, I've caused a problem here." You know, we'd already done it, obviously, in, in animals, etc. So I felt pretty good that we weren't going. But it was literally hard for me to imagine that any human could tolerate the degree of cold that we bring these things to. And the most recent thing that we're looking at now is steam, creating a chamber by putting a a flap at the bottom, flap at the top, filling the middle with steam. And the steam, in some respects, may be the the best way to do this because the temperature becomes uniform in the closed chamber. So there's nothing special about uh, radio frequency or, or freezing for that matter. Anything that effectively kills the cells will give us the same effect. Now, you have a new diagnostic strategy and you've brought it along. So I'm going to ask you to pull it out and describe what you use it for and why it's an advance. Yeah, yeah. So one of the frustrating things about preventing esophageal cancer is that most patients who should be screened for it or who have these early forms are not. And for that reason, even though we've got great treatments for early forms of this cancer, we're still not making a big dent in the numbers of these cancers and the number of people dying from these cancers because most people present very late in the course when the cancer is as big as your fist and our therapeutic options are few and outcomes are poor. So the only way we can detect these early forms right now is through endoscopy. But there aren't enough endoscopists. People are hesitant, understandably, to come in and get it. So wouldn't it be terrific to find a way to test for these precancerous and early cancerous conditions in your primary care office in an easy way that doesn't require a driver to come with you. So that's the genesis behind the recent development of these non-endoscopic ways of checking for this cancer. And the basic idea here is we're going to see if you have those precancer cells, but we're not going to do it by going down and looking and taking biopsies like I just described you. Instead, we're going to have you swallow something that's going to collect those cells for us you're not going to have to go to sleep. You're not going to have to, hence my prop for Describe today. Okay, so, so hold it up so we can see it here on yeah. the radio. Yeah, so <laughs> we, we need people to get real close to the radio. Yeah, here it is. You can see everything now, and this should be self-explanatory. Um, so what I'm holding in my hands for, uh, for those who are not Joe and Terry is a simple, simple device. And what it is is it looks like there's a little capsule on the end of essentially a stringy type thing, a catheter. Okay, And, 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 and I should say this capsule is about the size of a, a good-sized vitamin pill. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, certainly not particularly large, and which is good because we're going to ask you to swallow the business end of this thing. And we're going to ask you to do it while you're awake with a little bit of water. You just essentially swallow this thing down. But it's still attached to a tube. It's attached to a tube like a piece of spaghetti. And people go, and they swallow it down. Um, and the vast majority of people that do this can easily swallow this thing, Okay. At the end of this little tube, this catheter, uh, where the the vitamin-sized pill-type thing is, is a balloon that's actually collapsed and internalized inside of this capsule, okay? And the basic idea here is we're going to have you swallow this with the balloon encapsulated. This, by the way, is called the ESOCheck. I did not invent this. This was invented by some very clever investigators in Cleveland um, at Case Western University, but we're testing it. Um, you swallow this baby down. After it's down in your stomach, we're going to blow up the balloon at the bottom. Can I get an ooh on that? Yeah. yeah. Ooh. There. yeah. Thank you. Thank it's, you. It's, it, it's, it's much bigger now. It's much bigger and now. And it's got little 
spiky things on it. Yeah, let's not call them spiky because that'll scare people. But yeah, it's got little nub, nubs on it. Okay, and the reason that we have it, it's all plastic, it's all soft, nothing is going to hurt you. But the reason we have these little nubby things on it is that they're going to collect some cells for us. So now imagine this thing is down in my here we go down in my stomach. Okay. Now I'm going to pull it up through the area of interest, which, as I mentioned before, is the bottom part of the esophagus, the distal part of the esophagus. And it's going to collect those cells for me. Now, when I get out about here, which is halfway up my breastbone, I'm going to pull that air back out. And what that's going to do is collapse my balloon now and my cells back in. So it's inverted. Uh Then I'm going to pull this whole sucker out. Great. So it comes out the same little size as it went in. Right. So you will not, you'll never know that the balloon was full size and that it collected the cells. It will come out like the same little vitamin capsule it went in on. After we take it out, we blow this up again. We take some scissors. We go ka-chunk. We cut the balloon off. We take the cells off the balloon and we look for cell markers that show us that these precancerous cells are there. If those cell markers say no, you're in the clear. This has actually got very good operating characteristics. You don't need the endoscopy. Wonderful. And if the cell markers say, yeah, you've got Barrett's esophagus, then what? You're headed for endoscopy. And that's when, if surgical intervention is necessary, you can do that through that endoscopy Or these ablation procedures. Right, or the ablation. Exactly. So the first thing we're going to do is take biopsies, make sure the balloon was correct, and also see if there's precancerous change in there. And depending on what we see, that's what will tell you you should have something done. So this is really changing the nature of what you have done over the last 20, 30 years. It's got the potential to make things a lot better, Joe. So so the thing that's really frustrating to me is that the first part of my career, we spent a lot of time developing these treatments that are now really quite good, as I mentioned to you. But we're still not making a dent in this because we're not finding cases. This is the second part of the puzzle. Find the cases without the $1,000 procedure endoscopy, I mean, you can see this is low tech. Oh, my, yes. You know, this could be used in developing countries to help find squamous cell cancers and all sorts of interesting innovations going on with these. We're going to take a picture of it. Yeah. And And put it up up on the website. website. You know, because I like you guys so much, I'm going to give this, I'm donating this this prototype to the People's Pharmacy. Fantastic. We'll have to make note that the the Cleveland folks were the ones that actually came up with this. And it's uh, now available. It's commercially available. There's a company, a small company. Now we're, we're testing it more to better understand it. Sure. But in addition to that, it's commercially available, as is its precursor, which is a sponge, which isn't quite as high tech as this. Now, I want to talk briefly before the break, and we're trying to get our phones to work, which is a little bit of a challenge. I but think the phones are, are almost ready to work. So make your question okay. short. Well, the question is that a lot of people don't like to go in for colonoscopy. Mm-hmm. And colon cancer is... If I'm not mistaken, number three on the hit parade, it's right after, let's see, we start with lung cancer, then next comes... Well, breast or prostate. Breast or prostate. Depends on if it's a guy or gal, breast or prostate. Yeah, right. And then comes colon. Right. So it's a big killer. It's a big killer, and it's a preventable cancer. Yes, if you get in and have that colonoscopy and have those polyps removed. But a lot of people... It's not so much the colonoscopy, it's the prep. I bet you've heard that before. I've heard that before. That's absolutely correct. It's changing. There's something new. And I, I hope you can tell us, what, what's the name of it, Terry? This, the, these pills. Sutab. Mm-hmm. What's the deal? Yeah, yeah. So um, 
the first thing that – if your listeners leave with one thing from today, it's get screened for colon cancer. It doesn't have to be colonoscopy. We have other methods for doing this, but get screened for colon cancer. Let me say that again. Get screened for when? colon cancer. Uh, for average risk folks age 45 or greater. And that's changed. It used that's to be 50. Changed. It used to be 50, and, and, and we've changed that with the realization that – Colon cancer is occurring earlier in life for many people, and it turns out that we want to start screening earlier. In addition to that, let me say just briefly that if you have a family history of colon cancer, you should describe that to your doc because in certain cases, you we may want to do that first screening even earlier if you've shown – because it's clearly there's genetics involved in this as well. But for average risk person walking around out there, it's age 45 now. Now, go lightly. Yeah. Yuck. I mean, <laughs> I'm sorry to say this, but Joe, you have to say what it it's, is. It's this gallon of liquid glop, and you have to get it all down, and you used to have to get it all down all at once. I mean, over two hours, and it was just awful. It was longer than two hours. Well, it still. seemed like it lasted forever. Yeah. What's the deal on the pills? Yeah, yeah, right, and so, we have a minute before the break. So uh, let me redeem uh, the reputation of Go Lightly just a bit. It's not two hours. It's longer. And for most folks, they tolerate it well and keep it in context because you're going to do it every probably five or ten years. Having said that, yes, there are new preps available now that are pill preps, okay? And if you're okay with taking pills but not okay with taking a relatively large amount of fluid, this may be for you. Sutab. Yeah, Sutab. You're going to take multiple of these pills. Now, the pills do the same thing that the fluid do. They draw. So yeah. you're going to spend time in the bathroom because that's what you need to do. Unavoidable. You're going to have to have multiple bowel movements eventually ending in diarrhea for us to be able to do this exam well. So please don't – I want to disabuse you of the idea that, gosh, this is – I'm going to take a few pills and it's otherwise going to be a normal day. Yeah, no. It's, there, there's no there's, free lunch here, okay. <laughs> so to speak. You're listening to Dr. Nicholas Shaheen. We're talking about your digestive tract today, and we'd like to take your calls. Mm. We think our technical difficulties are resolved. 888-472-3366 to join the conversation. And you can email us, radio at peoplespharmacy.com. This podcast is made possible in part by Cocovia, maker of high-potency cocoflavanol supplements. Cocoflavanols are among the most well-studied plant-based nutrients, backed by 20 years of scientific research. Cocovia Cardio Health is available in capsules or powder, providing 500 milligrams of cocoflavanols daily. This supports better blood flow and vascular performance. Cocovia also offers Memory Plus, a supplement with 750 milligrams of cocoflavanols. This product is backed by four different clinical studies demonstrating significant improvement in several aspects of memory. Cocovia flavanols offer you all the benefits of chocolate without the sugar. Get 15% off your order by using the discount code PEOPLES15. That discount code Peoples 15. More information at cocovia.com.
Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia, offering plant-based nutrients in the form of cocoflavanols for brain and heart health. Online at Cocovia.com. And by Gaia Herbs. Their formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial. More information at Gaia, G-A-I-A, herbs.com. Today we're discussing your digestive tract. What should you be doing to protect it? We're talking with Dr. Nicholas Shaheen. He is the Bozimski Heiser Distinguished Professor of Medicine at the University of North Carolina School of Medicine and Chief of the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology at UNC. He also holds a position in the Department of Epidemiology at the Gillings School of Global Public Health. You can give us a call, 888-472-3366. You can also send us an email, radio at peoplespharmacy.com, and we will be getting to the calls in just a moment. Well, I'm going to start with an email from Phyllis in Iowa. Phyllis says that she is experiencing phlegm buildup in the throat after eating, and she needs a solution, Dr. Shaheen. Yeah. um, As I mentioned before, the most common symptom of reflux is heartburn, this burning that we described that's under the breastbone that rises up uh, from your stomach toward your chin. It is, however, not the only symptom of reflux. Anywhere refluxate touches, refluxate being the stuff that comes up from your stomach, can get irritated. And one of the symptoms we sometimes see is phlegm or a sore throat. Now, I'm not saying that's the only cause of that. In fact, you know, post-nasal drip, there's lots of other causes for, for phlegm. So, so um, I, I'm not suggesting this is the only thing, but it certainly can be a manifestation of reflux. And what should Phyllis do? If it is a man, especially since it, uh, it happens after eating, which is a time when, when reflux is common, oftentimes in these situations, we will try anti-acid medications to see if it causes a change. And your favorite? Um, the proton pump inhibitors are the most effective after now that we've said that lots of people don't get complete resolution of their symptoms. The, the, uh, most efficacious medications we have for acid suppression are this group of drugs called the proton pump inhibitors. There's several of them. And now. they're over the counter now. They, several of them are available over the counter now. The, the one that's probably most commonly used is omiprazole. Uh, which was the first one. Prilosec. Which is, goes down, went by the brand name of Prilosec and is now the generic Prilosec as well. And that's called omiprazole, but there's multiple of them, esomiprazole, lanzoprazole, et cetera, et cetera. And you can find them all grouped together conveniently at your local pharmacy. And all of them within plus minus 10% have about the same efficacy. Okay. And Terry, are we ready to try we the phones? We are. We're ready to talk to Daniel in Dallas, Texas. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy, Daniel. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Well, it's nice to hear your voice. What's on your mind? Um, I have an interesting problem. I I, uh, I recently moved to the United States from living overseas for several years. I live in South Korea, and after moving back to the States, I've developed debilitating issues with my stomach. Um, I have irritable bowel uh, syndrome, and I have uh, and I have constant heartburn. I've seen a doctor, and I've been advised to move to a low FODMAP diet, which does seem to uh, manifest some positive results. But I'm really curious if uh, there's any insight 
as to why moving to the States might have caused this. It's only been about two years even. Well, that is an interesting question, and I've long wondered why is it that certain people in certain countries do okay, and then when they move to another country, it's like, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. Montezuma's revenge we, if I go to Mexico. Well, well we've actually um, gotten messages from people who say, I figured it out. It's this thing that's different about my diet. So it's a possibility that it's a thing that's different about your diet, Daniel. And we're going to ask you in a minute, what the heck is a FODMOP? But first, what do you think is going on, Nick? Yeah, Daniel, that's, uh, I'm sorry to hear that, and welcome back. Um, the The first thought I had was exactly what Terry mentioned. Could there be something dietary? And obviously, those are cultures with vastly different staples and different diets. And even if you think you're eating the same stuff, different suppliers and different ways of growing the foods and perhaps, you know, pesticides, all sorts of different stuff that one could imagine might be at play here. One thing I'll mention, not because I necessarily think you have it, but it is something that occurs to me because you're you're coming from a kind of fish and plant-based diet to a place that tends to eat much more mammalian meat is what's called alpha-gal allergy. And I'm thinking a little bit about this. This is an allergy that is manifest when folks eat red meats. I don't know how much red meat you eat, but it can look an awful lot like IBS with with abdominal pain, loose stools, etc. Um, might be worthwhile. It sounds like you're already seeing somebody for this. Maybe mentioning that, that and, and perhaps it's, it'd be worthwhile to check you uh, for that because that does come to mind just based on the country you're coming from and the country you're coming to. Um, the My guess is that it's probably something in the environment that may be quite difficult to tease out. Um, we also, I will parenthetically say, is we don't know what brings on um, IBS, why some people start manifesting it when they do. And maybe we should talk for two minutes or one minute about irritable bowel syndrome or IBS, okay? Um, because We it's definitely should. It's pretty so common. So common. It's uh, 50% of folks that have GI upset will be uh, afflicted with this thing called and irritable bowel syndrome. And um, the symptoms? The symptoms include abdominal pain, bloating, distension, oftentimes relieved by bowel movements, sometimes alternating diarrhea and constipation, although you could be predominantly one or the other. These uh, symptoms are chronic, meaning that this is not a one-time event or I had this for a week, but this is something that is happening to me quite frequently, and it lasts for, it can last for months to years. Um, And that's irritable bowel syndrome. And that's quite common, and many, many of your listeners, I'm sure, carry that diagnosis. Terry, we have uh, Donna. We do, or we did, and now I don't think we have Donna anymore, but but we still have her question, which is a very good one. Donna from Newcastle, Virginia, wants to know whether the purge before colonoscopy, that, that colon cleansing, does it create problems for the gut biome? And if it does create problems for the gut biome, what do we do about it? What a terrific question. I wish Donna was still here so I could congratulate her. I Um, wish so too. That's terrific. So the answer is that transiently, Donna's absolutely right. So uh, let's say what the gut microbiome is because that sounds scary and dangerous. That's absolutely stone cold normal. And what it means is 
the the bacteria that are resident are living in your colon. The trillions. Trillions. There's more of them than there are of you. When you count cells in your body, there are more bacteria in your colon than there are cells in your body. So, and you say, gosh, that sounds terrible. Bacteria are a bad thing. No, bacteria are a good thing. These bacteria are actually helping you in many, many ways with your health. And absolutely true that when you do this cleanse, the absolute amount of these bacteria goes down dramatically because that's exactly what we're trying to do. We're trying to rid the colon of its contents and much of its contents are the bacteria. However, bacteria adhere or stick to the walls of the colon in roughly the same proportions that you did before the purge. And those bacteria are just waiting for this horrible event that occurred to them, i.e. the purge, to be over so they can start multiplying again. And when you check folks' microbiome a few weeks after they've had the colonoscopy, it's essentially identical to that before. So, yes, there's a transient market perturbation in this, but it doesn't appear to be associated with any long-term bad outcomes. Well, we have another question about the microbiome. Barbara, in Durham, you've been very patient. Please, I'm going to – this is terrible, but I'm going to ask you to make your question as short as you can, please. Hello, Barbara. Your microbiome, Mr. 73. You know, Barbara, been... we're having trouble hearing yeah. you. Yeah, you're fading in so and fading out. So what I'm going to do is give the essence of the question that you, uh, that, that you have put forth in, um, in email, uh, since we can't hear you very well. Barbara's sister has headaches and nausea and has had them for quite a while, a couple years. And the question is, could this be related to the microbiome? The doctors have been looking for a cause for headache and they haven't found anything. Yeah, so nausea may be more so. There are some diseases that are associated with perturbation of the microbiome that can lead to nausea. Headaches, not so much, not commonly, uh, not commonly associated with problems in the microbiome. So, you know, the, there are things we can do to, uh, to work on our microbiome. Your, your listeners may have heard these medications called probiotics uh, that are essentially healthy bacteria that we package in an effort and have you take as pills. Uh, there are also enemas that actually can be given that can change the microbiome as well. A fecal transplant. The the most impressive uh, example of that would be fecal transplant for, say, folks that have got a, a horrible infection of their colon called C. diff or, or Clostridia difficile. Uh, that's the most uh, impressive uh, example of putting healthy bacteria where bad bacteria were. I've got a question from Pam. And uh, I, I find this particularly interesting, good this question. email. Yeah. Pam says, please tell me, Dr. Shaheen, why can't I be awake for my colonoscopy? And, and I and I have a, a confession to make. I've been having colonoscopies since I was 40. And um, one of your colleagues at uh, at UNC did these without any anesthesia. I was awake for the entire time and he would show me on the monitor, on the TV screen, and here you are and there's something interesting. And we would kind of, I'd follow him all the way down till he exited my body. So it, it apparently used to be that way. Now, of course, everybody gets put to sleep. Why can't people watch what's going on? 
Pam, you absolutely can watch your colonoscopy. And in the hands of a skilled colonoscopist, you know, Joe can speak to this because he's actually had the experience. Uh, the discomfort associated with it actually, for most folks, is quite mild. And I, you know, I talk about these things at cocktail parties, but I find it quite interesting. And I think many people would find it quite interesting as well to be awake and actually see what we're doing. If you, um, for, you're right, for most folks, we do sedate them now to avoid that discomfort. There's unquestionably some discomfort from distension or stretching the colon because we put air in there and also putting inserting the tube. But there'd be absolutely nothing wrong with asking your colonoscopist to either go light on the colonoscopy or even start uh, light on the sedation or start with no sedation and see how I do. If, if you find it's uncomfortable, you've got the IV in, the stuff we use is short, is quick acting, you certainly could be put to sleep. But many of your listeners would do just fine with unsedated colonoscopy. And in fact, we do that probably in 5% of cases. Now, I think earlier you mentioned that there are a couple of alternatives um, that allow doctors to detect a potential colon cancer without a colonoscopy in the event that there's some reason that somebody can't or won't do a colonoscopy. Tell us more about that. I'm so happy you brought that up, Terry, because there are undoubtedly listeners right now that are saying, you know, I hear what you're saying. I hear that it's not bad. No how, no why. Never. I, this is not the way I'm going to get my colon cancer screening. Gosh, do we have something for you. There are multiple different ways to screen for colon cancer. Colon cancer screening is not synonymous with colonoscopy. The easiest ones, I guess, in some respects, are what we call stool tests, okay? And there, there are actually multiple of them. The first one was which was called FOPT, which was fecal occult blood testing. It just tests for blood that you can't see but is present in your stool because these growths leak blood. Um, that has been superseded more recently with, for FIT, which is a fecal immunohistochemical uh, staining, uh, and uh, the it's an immunotest that essentially is doing the same thing, looking for blood. And then the third thing that I will mention that we don't do as much but is absolutely available and it's available in the triangle is colonography, which is a CT test that actually looks for growths and they can actually image them. Uh, and especially for big growth, it's actually quite good. And you can have your screening entirely based on the imaging as well. So you have multiple choices, and, and you should pick the one that's best for you. Now, we see on television the commercials for Cologuard. Yeah. What's that? Yeah, Cologuard is a stool DNA test. So it's another stool test. I'm glad you brought it up. It, it's a stool test that actually incorporates the FIT, but also has DNA markers. So it's it's a stool sample. You take the stool sample, and it's more accurate than the two other stool tests that I mentioned to you. So uh, it's out there. It's marketed as well. Now, one caveat I will give for those stool tests, that is if the stool test is positive, they are going to recommend colonoscopy for you. Oh, absolutely. So, so Because if they have to remove something, right. that's the that's only way. That's the way to do it. That's the way to do it. So, yeah, yeah that's exactly right. We are almost out of time. And therefore, we are going to ask, what digestive symptoms should get your attention so that you take action? 
Terrific question. And this is really important because all of us every day have some degree of digestive symptoms. And some of us, as we've heard already from your callers, have relatively severe symptoms. Which ones demand immediate or urgent attention? Which ones should you mention to your doc when you're in? And which ones are within the range of normal? And that's that can be hard for people to suss out. We have these things called alarm symptoms. Alarm symptoms demand immediate attention. If you pass blood from above and below, that has us very worried for a growth or a lesion that may be oozing blood. And we that's something that you don't sit on for six months, so to speak. Literally now, figuratively. Right. Now, passing blood can be red or it can be black, correct? Yes, that is correct. And, and, and it has to do with where the blood came from. If it comes from a hemorrhoid, it's going to tend to be bright red, which are the enlarged veins at the bottom of your colon. If it's from an ulcer, it'll be black. Right. And that's much more worrisome. Right. Anything else that you should be alert for? We've got about 15 seconds. Yeah. Remember before I mentioned the dysphagia or difficulty swallowing? That's something that you definitely want to tell people about. Unexplained weight loss. Okay. Uh, You know, Americans only seem to go to one direction. If you drop 20 pounds and you don't know why, that should worry you because it worries us. Okay. And of course, a healthy diet. We haven't had a chance to talk about what that means, but Dr. Shaheen, thank you so much for joining us today. We are so grateful for your insights and your wisdom and your research. Dr. Nicholas Shaheen is the Bozimski Heiser Distinguished Professor of Medicine at the University of North Carolina School of Medicine and Chief of the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology at UNC. Lynn Siegel produced today's show. Pamela Alberta and Ayasi Chinflu provided technical assistance. Al Wadarski engineered... The People's Pharmacy theme music is by B.J. Lederman. The People's Pharmacy is a co-production of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC, with The People's Pharmacy. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia, maker of high-potency cocoflavanol supplements that support cognitive and cardiovascular health. More information at cocovia.com. And by Gaia Herbs, providing transparency through its Meet Your Herbs platform, tracing the origin and DNA of each product. More information at Gaia, G-A-I-A, herbs.com. Today's show is number 1,316. You can find it online at peoplespharmacy.com. You could subscribe to our podcast through your favorite podcast provider, or you can listen to it after we post it on our website on Monday morning. If you go to peoplespharmacy.com, you can sign up for our free online newsletter. If you want to learn about drug alerts, this is an easy way to stay on top of breaking health news. You can also continue to email us. It's radio at peoplespharmacy.com. We will pass on a couple of your questions directly to Dr. Shaheen. He is very kind to be able to answer some of the most important ones. In Durham, North Carolina, I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next week. Thank you for listening to the People's Pharmacy Podcast. It's an honor and a pleasure to bring you our award-winning program week in and week out. But producing and distributing this show as a free podcast takes time and costs money. If you like what we do and you'd like to help us continue to produce high-quality, independent healthcare journalism, 
please consider chipping in. All you have to do is go to peoplespharmacy.com slash donate. Whether it's just one time or a monthly donation, you can be part of the team that makes this show possible. Thank you for your continued loyalty and support. We couldn't make our show without you.